All right. Good morning, and welcome back to another edition of the Weekend Debrief here on FingerLakes1.com. It's been a while. It's been about a month. Uh, but me, Josh Durso, and uh, Ted Baker are here, and we're going to take you into the weekend with the biggest headlines and stories that have been making their way through uh, the FingerLakes1.com homepage over the last two weeks. Uh, as always, thanks for joining us wherever you might be listening from. Ted, welcome back. We're here. We're socially distant still. Uh, week, a billion of social distancing and everything else. And um, it's interesting because things are kind of evolving by the day still, even though I think a lot of people might have thought, if you backtrack three or four months, that by this point we might see a little more stability in terms of the decision-making and the rules and regulations and things like that coming out of the state. But obviously that's not the case because even just in the last uh, three to four to five days, we've seen uh, pretty big swings in policy. Yeah, it's uh, it, it still changes day by day. And uh, it, it was interesting because it's normally the governor who throws in the monkey wrench, but this time it was the superintendent's association after the announcement with some guidance for school sports earlier this week. So speaking of which, uh, I'm calling you the resident sports guy today because you are the resident sports guy. You normally are calling games. Typically within basically like the by the end of August, early September, you're usually calling games, correct? Usually the first Hobart and William Smith soccer for me is in late August, and then the high schools usually kick in first Friday after Labor Day. Okay, so we had the governor's rule, which came or his his decision that came out on Monday um, after a few days of waiting, that it was going to be September 21, I believe, was the the cutoff time uh, for when games could be played low-risk games. Everyone could practice, but low-risk. Then on Tuesday and Wednesday, we started to hear a little bit of uh, some concerns from different groups of folks, and then the superintendent's uh, conference within the state uh, yesterday released a letter calling for all sports to be put on hiatus until January, Uh, and even in part of that letter made the argument that all three seasons of sports could be condensed into the second semester of the school year, which I find to be really crazy. And I know just from just from knowing some, uh, some parents of of students who play multiple sports, that is going to rub them the wrong way. Uh, the folks who want to see some sort of normalcy return that is going to rub them the wrong way. Um, And it kind of seems like, as we've done a little bit of digging in the newsroom on this this conference and the kind of power they have, and Ted, you and I were talking about this before we came on, um, it's concentrated a little bit more downstate, um, but a pretty powerful group. And you start to wonder if uh, calls like this may actually have an impact on whether uh, sports do happen or not. Well, before I talk about the superintendents, I want to back up to the governor's so-called guidance because it displayed the usual characteristics of the governor's guidance, which is it raised more questions than it answered, didn't seem to make sense, didn't seem to be consistent with previous guidance. So he says no football, which didn't surprise anybody. Soccer makes the cut as a low-risk sport. Volleyball does not. Hockey, which isn't even a fall sport, is mentioned as a no-go, while there's no mention whatsoever of basketball. And so, and then 
where who can you play when they said play in your own area are they talking about some some people interpreted that as meaning within your section section five in our area section three in the auburn area others thought that meant the economic reopening section so you could only play in the greater rochester finger lakes area so it just i've been saying this now since probably the end of march i mean these these governor cuomo edicts are designed to create complete reliance on Andrew Cuomo. We all have to drop what we're doing every morning at 11 and see what he's going to say today. And I'm sure in the next day or two or early next week, he'll have something to say about what the superintendent said. Now, on to the superintendent's letter. From what I've seen, and I haven't read the whole thing, but it sounds like a lot of the concerns they're raising are logistical and expense rather than purely safety. I think what they're saying, if you read between the lines, is how are you going to put together... It's like the school opening plans. Remember, everyone put the school opening plans together, and the governor came on one day and criticized them all and said they weren't specific enough, they didn't address this, they didn't address that. I think what the superintendents are saying between the lines is why should we spend the money and expend the resources to have a plan to start up sports when that plan can be shot full of holes by the governor any day he chooses. Mm-hmm. And obviously we're going to talk a little bit more about reopening plans and the, the financial concerns that a lot of districts have about even just reopening schools in general this coming month. Um, but the one thing the, the one thing out of the whole list of sports on the do and don't list uh, that I was intrigued by were, um, and, you know, I, I golf. I was a golfer in high school, a golfer in college, like, uh, golf was one of those sports where, like, depending on what section you were in, it played in different seasons. Golf is a fall sport in most of Section 5, and it was not uh, included at all, as far as I could see, in any of the guidance that had come That's out. That's true. I hadn't thought of that, but and, no, it wasn't. You know, so it, it, there's issues like that, and I know, like, some... You know, some schools do one gender of, say, tennis one season and then another the next. Does that mean that you – and there's – again, to your point, there are a lot of – there were a lot more questions than answers with the guidance that was issued. It just it's, – it's intriguing to me because clearly there's a lot of work and effort going into – I'm not going to shortchange the governor and say that, that, that his team isn't doing a lot of – or expending a lot of energy to come up with these – plans or ideas but at the same time they're they're so lackluster in terms of detail and execution and how these districts are supposed to execute them I, to your point yeah I, I can understand why the superintendents are left scratching their heads saying and how are we going to do this they're inconsistent one of the things that the superintendents brought up part of the school reopening guidelines are that phys ed students must remain 12 feet apart so in phys ed, I have to be 12 feet away from the next kid, yet I can play soccer and we can jump up for the same header ball and slam into each other. It just, I, I'd be curious how much of this the governor's coming up with on his own, and, and if not, where he's getting his advice. Because again, like, I hadn't even thought about it until you brought that up, that golf wasn't mentioned at all. Like I say, hockey, which isn't even a fall sport, was mentioned as a no. Wrestling but was also mentioned. Basketball wasn't as a no. mentioned, which is another winter sport. So it's once again, if you're a school, you can go to all this effort and you can try to get ready, and then there's going to be that curveball 
somewhere where all of a sudden it's changed and now you have to redo it. I, I just think that I, I think what the superintendents are saying is, look, we don't even know what the opening of school looks like. How can we really be talking about school sports when we really need to be just worrying about plain old school and reading, writing, and arithmetic? So obviously it's been, it, like I said off the top of the show, it's been about a month since we've sat down for one of these programs. But uh, obviously all of, during our last recording, all of the school reopening plans were due in about five to seven days, and they came out. Most districts actually submitted all their plans, did all the things they were supposed to do, including posting them to the, the websites. And I want to talk about the different ways in which schools are going to reopen uh, and how that's going to cause a little bit of a logistic nightmare uh, in a few minutes. But first we had, and this happened in the beginning part of the month, uh, the situation where the governor essentially created this naughty list. And I wrote a column in the Finger Lakes Times about it last week. Uh, you know, he publishes a list of schools that have allegedly not submitted their plans, that have not done the things they were supposed to do, including publish those plans to the district websites. And almost immediately, a ton of districts, including a, a few locally, you had, I believe Geneva might have been on the list originally. Seneca Falls was definitely on the list for the long haul. Uh, Pelmac was also on that list as well. And you had these superintendents having to literally quell fears inside their own districts because the state is calling them out about something that they had done days before. And it was interesting because we had just happened to finish a story within a couple days of this all happening where we, we listed every single district and we linked to the reopening page of every single right. school district in our, in our coverage area, just as basically to serve as a reference heading into the fall. And because I had gone through and hyperlinked all of those districts, I knew that those districts and those superintendents weren't wrong in what they were saying. But I was absolutely amazed at the amount of basically uh, lashing out that I saw after my column went up this past week saying that I was being overly critical of, of the governor or making excuses for people on the right who are constantly looking for ways that the, the left or what they see as the left is, is passing out misinformation. And I, I, I just wanted to sort of highlight the fact that that list is still up. If you go through the governor's database of, of press releases and announcements and everything, that incorrect list, which was not only fact-checked as being wrong, but literally just plainly wrong to anybody who, who could click the mouse twice, it's still there. It's a month later. It, it's astounding to me that anyone is willing to overlook something as, as plain as that because unlike, and this is the comparison that a few people threw to me was, well, you know, do you think we're ever going to know the true number of coronavirus cases that have happened in New York State? Are you going to criticize the governor for the numbers not being correct there? Are you going to criticize people on the right for something similar in that regard? And, and I'm sitting back saying to myself, if you're the governor of a state, even if it's a state as big as New York, you're talking about a total number of districts that probably doesn't exceed, what, 1,000? There's probably less than 1,000 school districts in New York State. I don't know what the total number is. But if if your sole purpose is to accept 1,000 plans and your your government is as large as New York State's is, that shouldn't be a difficult, a difficult thing to accomplish. It just no. shouldn't. 
and, and it, it was. It was completely bungled, and it was a disaster. And, and the fact that we're even still having to have this conversation or talk about it is a little bit insulting in my mind. But, again, you know, here we are. to me, it just it calls the governor's motives into question. There, there's no need to make this public shaming list. And certainly, if you are going to make it, at least do your due diligence and make sure that it's correct. My understanding is that one of the big problems was a number of districts submitted their plan to the Department of Education when it was supposed to have gone to the Department of Health. But again, we, we just, it's this punitive, it's like the crusade against bars with the state liquor authority and the state police task force. It, it seems to me like it's more about self-glorification of this governor, the governor who, by the way, announced on day one of the Democratic National Convention that he was writing a book about his response to the COVID crisis, which by his own admission was at halftime. I mean, these things call into question, to me, what this is all about. Is it really about public health and safety and doing the prudent thing, or is it about Andrew Cuomo's self-glorification of Andrew Cuomo? Yeah, and, you know, sort of going back to the plans, most of these districts had to come up with three to five different opening procedures. Um, And now what we have heading into September are basically three different ways that districts are opening, but every single district is taking a different approach. And uh, it seems to be that there's a lot of concern within the community about how these different approaches are going to all work once they're all working and going at the same time. What kind of logistical issues are going to come up? Um, It's interesting. You've got Auburn, who's going fully remote. Um, We're going to be sitting down with Jeff Pirozzolo next week to talk that that over and why and how and that kind of thing. Um, You've got other schools like Seneca Falls going back fully. You've got other districts, uh, Red Jacket, a few in Wayne County, uh, doing the hybrid model where they're kind of bringing students back a couple days and then maybe shorter days and things like that. Um, what do you make of the the prospect of schools basically being left to their own devices and decide how they're going to reopen, given the the so-called seriousness of the situation, especially when you're talking about um, finances and public health and safety and that sort of thing? Well, I'm generally a believer in smaller governments, so I'd rather see individual school districts make decisions about their own operations than see the state or the federal government do it. But I think we're going to end up with a real have and have-not system of education here over the next few years. We're going to have some districts where kids are going to get a pretty good education. We're going to get others where they're not because, again, we, we've talked about this way before COVID. Not everybody's got the internet. Not everybody's got high speed. Not every family can afford to have a computer. So, you know, we're seeing a big increase now in these uh, sort of private entities getting together to create their own little mini schools or to help kids with their online learning. So I think we're going to, the, the, the greater questions that we talked about back at the beginning of this thing still need to be answered. The economic questions, the education questions. I mean, are we seeing the end of five-day-a-week 
in-person schooling? Is that never going to come back? I put a poll on our website, fingerlakesdailynews.com, a couple of weeks ago. When do you think New York will return to pre-COVID normal? Nearly half the respondents say never. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I guess part of this lies in what habits are being baked into people now during the pandemic. I mean, there's different spaces that have seen growth. There's different spaces that have seen declines. You know, you and I were talking about restaurants before we came on and, and sort of the change in trend there. Um, at the, the Board of Supervisors meeting in Seneca County earlier this week, uh, one business owner spoke and said that, you know, they just got through uh, an August this year that actually beat August last year. So, you know, I think there's I think there's elements of of change happening. But again, I think honestly, to your point, if we have the basically the latter half of last year and then most of this year spent or all of this year spent in remote, part-time, less than five days in from seven to two, um, I, I think it could be something that sticks long-term. It just, it, it does. I mean... We have all these buildings and buses and resources. Are, are we still using them? If not, what are we going to do with them? I mean, we, we've talked about it in, in terms of working at home. A number of businesses have realized they don't need to have a big central office and maintain that expense when their employees can work with a laptop or a tablet and a few network computers. And I mean, the same questions need to be asked about schools. Uh, do we, are we going to need big buildings that hold several hundred people anymore, or are we permanently shifting away from that model to something else? And what's the something else, and, and what are we going to do with these resources? Yeah, that that's the part. And obviously there's a lot of there's a lot of uncertainty still in what the next several months and subsequent year I suppose uh looks like. And honestly, maybe it mostly hinges on what happens when students go back to school. Is there an outbreak? Is there not an outbreak? Do numbers surge? Do they not surge? You know, what happens there may very well tell how quickly we see that pre-COVID normal come back. And then the great wild card is the vaccine. Right. When does a vaccine get developed? How effective is it? Because, I mean, here in New York, we talked about this before we came on. Here in New York, we were told in March, flatten the curve. It's pretty flat. Three deaths in the entire state yesterday. That's fewer, I'm sure, than there were in automobile accidents. Uh, yeah. Under 1% positive testing 19 days in a row. I mean, it doesn't get much flatter. I don't think it's realistic I mean, I talked months ago about that day when we would get to zero deaths and zero cases. Maybe with something this widespread across the world, that's not possible. But it seems we've gotten about as close to it as we can, and that's with reopening. I mean, we're all in much more contact with people now than we were in, say, April, but there hasn't been that corresponding uptick. Yeah, and obviously one of the biggest headlines and stories over the last month has been connected to unemployment and when the the excess benefits of $600 per month backed by the federal government expired at the end of July, how quickly that was going to be renewed or something like it would be renewed. It was not renewed. It has not been renewed. But President Trump did sign a series of executive orders that addressed a bunch of the issues that a lot of folks wanted to see Congress address. There was in that a... a scenario where states could apply through FEMA for basically 
enhanced unemployment for unemployed workers. It would it would mean basically three hundred dollars being passed down from the federal government uh, to them. Curious though, as now we've seen the governor after about a week or a week and a half of saying that he doesn't trust the legality, he doesn't trust FEMA. He doesn't believe that that's the right agency to be taking care of this. New York State will, in fact, participate. They've been approved. Waiting to see when those boosted benefits may actually land in unemployed workers' checks. But we're there. It's happening. Um, What do you make of that situation in general and how that evolved? Do you think, because the, the biggest question that keeps popping up on social media now as we post these stories is, Will there be another stimulus package, given that this program now can, in theory, run through the end of December, assuming the money doesn't run out? I think there will be some kind of stimulus bill passed. I talked to Congressman Tom Reed just recently. He thinks there will be. I thought that $600 a week was too much. That's $30,000 a year on top of your state benefits, which now makes it more lucrative not to work than to work for a lot of people. And ironically, it was a lot of people in industries like restaurants. So when we had the reopenings, they had a difficult time finding staff because they had workers that said, um, I'm okay just collecting my 30, 35, 40,000 a year to do nothing through the end of July rather than coming to work. So uh, I thought 600 was too much. I think you can make a case for some reasonable amount. I also thought it was kind of interesting because the governor's rationales kept shifting a little bit. Originally, his plan, because under the, the president's plan, it was 300 from the federal government, but the state had to match that with 100 as its own. And the governor said, we don't have that 100. And I think a lot of states are probably in that boat. Then the, the rationale shifted a little more towards not trusting it and the legality of it, setting aside the hilarity of Governor Cuomo questioning the legality of executive action. Right. And... To that end, I, I thought it was interesting because I have, I I've heard more people say that they're comfortable with this three hundred dollar boost as opposed to the six hundred dollar boost. But you know, if you run the math on it, the max benefit in New York State now because of this is about eight hundred five dollars a week. You know, that's forty one forty almost forty two thousand dollars a year. You know, if you're if you're gaming that out for a full calendar year, and obviously it doesn't look like this will last that long, but still, it's the point. Like, it's still more than what the median salary is in a county like Seneca. You know, the median it, median salary income is something I want to say around twenty five or twenty six thousand dollars. So, you know, it's 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 hard to make this argument. I feel like that it needs to be in lockstep with what people were making before because. The economic realities of the moment are so so much greater than they were when everything was just fine. Right. I I think it sets a dangerous precedent for the future because now we're we're beginning to set this precedent that unemployment is something to restore your previous working income and then some. It was never designed to be that way. The idea is if you lose your job, unemployment pays you, say, 60% of what you were earning as a worker— you don't go out to eat, you don't take vacations, you belt tighten, you look for a job, and in a few weeks or months you find a job, and then you can go back to your previous lifestyle. So the idea that you can be unemployed and live better than you did when you were working, uh, people are going to get to like that, 
And that's well, going to be a dangerous thing in the future. Wait a second, though. How many times have we sat here and had a conversation about basically the state or the federal government needing to at some point step in and give something to people who just can't make an like just can't right you know at as great as it sounds to say like they need to go out and someone needs to go out and find a job well if all of your experience is in the service industry and the restaurants that you and i are visiting if they're not in a vacation you know destination uh are are running two two wait staff instead of six or eight uh you know what kind of job prospects does that person have are they supposed to go find go you know get retrained? Are they supposed to go back to school? Or what money are they using to do that? You know, like it was interesting. I listened to uh, a podcast earlier this week. It's called The Indicator. And they were talking about uh, basically what the stimulus was really meant to do and how it worked. It worked because it kept people spending money in the economy, even though the, the situation like you're describing, you had tons of people out of work who couldn't or shouldn't have been spending excess money under normal circumstances, but we're still doing it. And in a lot of ways, when all is said and done, that will probably be a pretty big factor in what kept us going and kept our economy alive during what realistically should have been a death blow. Well, that's I mean, a very good full point. shutdown. I, I mean, I guess you, you've kind of caught me in my uh, contradiction of positions <laughs> here. I hate when that happens. But it, true, the, the idea of the extra money was that that retail spending would continue. Although it's interesting, I saw a survey just recently that rather than spending money in the economy, a lot of people are paying down debt and saving and, and tightening up. So I don't know if you know how much of that extra money actually did what it was intended to do and how much it went to Bank of America to pay down credit card balances. Well, and, and you know, opponents to that are going to say, well, hey, that's, that is exactly the kind of thing that can shelter lending in the future. So it can it can make sure that those institutions can keep lending money despite the fact that, you know, people may have less of it through their normal work. My curiosity at this point really is, are we getting closer to a universal basic income? And I think the answer is no matter who is in office, and I, this is gonna this is gonna rub a lot of the the rural conservative folks who I know listen and, and read and watch Finger Lakes 1 and probably uh, Finger Lakes News Radio 2 uh, the wrong way. But it is, it, I think that no matter who's in office, some form of universal basic income is going to become necessary in the next four years. The, the jobs and the types of jobs that people have historically been trained for are not going to be there in the numbers that they need to be to keep millions of people who are unemployed now employed or rehired in the future. One of the things isn't. I found fascinating politically of this whole thing is that Republicans have agreed to a lot of things that they normally don't agree to. They're not real big on a big social safety net and big government, but I think they've read the tea leaves and realized that people were who were hurting wanted some kind of relief. So it'll be It'll be really interesting to see how easy it is to put the genie back in the bottle. If oh. we have, if we have, like I say, if we have unex expanded unemployment now, then how easy is it going to be later on to say, well, COVID's over now, so take your 60% of what you're earning before and be happy with it, or 70 or whatever percent it is. Well, and, you know, it almost comes down, it's not even as much a matter of, like, what you're happy with or not happy with, but... 
you know, again, if we aren't putting people in a position where they can find work after high school, if these trade programs aren't accessible, if the, if, you know, higher education is going to go through some sort of big consequential expensive shift in the next two years because of their own financial issues that they're facing right now. It's not going to be that easy for people to just walk out and, and be employed all of a sudden. So at some point, it seems like there's going to need to be a, a safety net. And we're not, that's not even taking automation into account. Right. And that's not even taking into account the, the, what I think will likely be an impact of work from home in that people are more efficient from home they're able to do more and thereby employers need fewer employees to do work because they're doing more from home. These discussions are going to have to take place. There's no doubt about it. And just to throw another monkey wrench into the equation, uh, we have a presidential election in something like 10 or 11 weeks now. And Joe Biden has said that if his scientific experts tell him we should shut down the economy, he's okay with that. So depending, we could see a very different federal COVID response, well, we almost certainly will see a very different federal COVID response if Joe Biden wins the election rather than the president being reelected. So, that, I mean, that's going to, that could be a real game changer if Joe Biden gets in, in office. Uh, a lot of the things the Democrats have been talking about in terms of opening up too soon and we should have been more cautious, you know, we might start to see some rollbacks in economic activity and in what's allowed to be open and take place. So let's talk about a couple local stories here while we got a, a few minutes as we push toward the second half of the show. Um, one of the things that I didn't throw on the list that I sent to you yesterday, but that occurred to me this morning was a story that we ran about probably two weeks ago. Uh, the Gatehouse Gannett merged company uh, that owns the Chronicle Express in Penyan laid off most of its news staff over the list. It quietly, quietly unloaded its editor earlier in the spring and then eliminated most of its sort of professional staff that it had down there, and now only leaving one, one reporter um, covering the, the village or, or what the, the newspaper's footprint is. And it's interesting to me because this is one of those scenarios. The company says that it's as bought into the Finger Lakes and these small communities as it ever has been. But again, reading those tea leaves that you were talking about earlier, it's very clear that these big companies don't care. It's very clear that these big companies like Gannett and, and the, of the like don't care about these small communities like Penyan, like Canandaigua, like, you know, and it it's really interesting because we're talking about all these economic factors that are impacting the, the average Joe, and they're just as real in the, in the media newspaper landscape. And, oh, by the way, one of the one of the things we're going to be talking about later on in the show is about FOIL requests and how we have counties and towns and villages basically dragging their feet on FOIL requests that should be as easily fulfillable as anything because of the pandemic. And it, without these smaller newspapers and and coverage in these rural places, I I find it very I find it difficult to imagine a scenario where representation in these communities is going to get better. In fact, I think it'll get worse because you have a vacuum where these people, you know, people who get into politics for the wrong reasons can basically hide away without any real uh, accountability. Well, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. I don't think it's that Gatehouse or other media companies don't care about these communities. 
they can't figure out how to monetize what they do to be able to keep doing it. It's just, it for any advertising-based media, including our station, and I'm sure, you know, Finger Lakes One, I'm sure has seen its issues over these last several months, it's just more and more difficult to attract a big enough share of the ad revenue to justify having three or four or whatever number of reporters you used to have. So, and, and the other, you know, as you were saying that, the other factor that comes to mind is I think there's less a market for the truth than there used to be. We have the left and the right, and the left knows what they know, and they hate the right, and the right knows what they know, and they hate the left. I think that the market for just unbiased, objective truth is kind of going away and being replaced with social media sniping and opinion. It's interesting. I'll, I guess to a certain degree I'll agree with the second point. I, I'll, har, I'll, I'll really aggressively disagree with the, with the first part, which is that you know a company like Gannett or whatever their new name is is entirely uh, – they go by the way of shareholders. And any gigantic corporation like that is bad for the people at the bottom of the totem pole. And the people at the bottom of the totem pole are, A, the community, and B, the people who work for the smallest of things owned by that mega corporation. True enough. That's a good point. I mean, you know, so to say that, you know, they just haven't been able to find a way to properly monetize, you know, I'll use Finger Lakes One as an example, and this isn't to toot our own horn, but we haven't seen it. We haven't seen the decline. We haven't been as reliant on the traditional means of advertising that a lot of media companies are. And maybe that is, I'll, I'll give that the, the truth and space it deserves. A lot of traditional media still very hung up on very traditional ways of advertising and making money and of the like. And that can be true, but you can't deny the fact that any time a small newspaper is is bought up by a large organization, it winds up getting crushed. Like it just winds up getting hacked down into little bits. Yeah, that's true. And you know how. And here's the other thing too. And I know this is you know I I write for uh, on a freelance basis. I write for the the Ovid Gazette and the Interlake and Review. Um, it's a weekly newspaper, and I am not for a second doubting the expense and the time and the labor and all that stuff that goes into um, producing something like that. But when you're the Chronicle Express or you're any weekly newspaper and you're owned by a mega corporation who has all of the means, all of the resources you could possibly imagine and a CEO making tens of millions of dollars, you should be able to, with all of that time and all of that money, come up with use a little bit of brain power to come up with a creative way to make those papers work with the little bit of expense that actually is incurred with operating them. It's not like there's a lot of them. Right. I mean, the, the sheer, I, I, watching the numbers and maybe the next show I'll actually produce it. I'll produce a graph so people can understand like the scope of how much shrink has happened over the last two decades. There just aren't that many newspapers left and they're printing what? Like two, maybe a couple thousand copies for people who live in, in Penyan and the surrounding area, if that, it just doesn't, it, it can't cost that much. It can't cost so much that Gannett turns around and says, sorry guys, we have to lay off four people and you don't have an editor anymore. Bye. 
You're poking a lot of holes in my arguments today. I think I'm, I'm rusty from having been up for a month. It's a month. month. <laughs> you shouldn't have taken, gone on I, vacation. I there's a difference between a big corporation like Gannett or Gatehouse and a little independent operator. Sure, yeah, a, a multi-million dollar corporation, if they wanted to continue strong journalism in Penny End, they could. And point, to, point well taken. And to that point also, I, I say, and uh, you know, you guys being locally owned, locally operated, you can pivot when you need to pivot. You can move when you need to move. But as soon as the ownership is not local anymore, that it's gone. Like the local stake is gone. The people on the ground don't get to decide at that point anymore. You know, you guys have, a, have an organization that's small enough where you can sit down, talk over what direction you want to go and go that direction. That's not the case in these right, these right. corporate newsrooms, and that's you know that crushes communities like Penyan because you know it's far enough away from the big metro without having a throughway nearby or something like that where you get that sort of constant flow back and forth between these Syracuse Rochester metros. Right, Penyan I mean, gets. I mean, they don't get covered much by Rochester television, uh, <laughs> like like Waterloo, Seneca Falls, Geneva does. Although when we look back. Those communities don't get as much coverage as they used to. I oh, remember when yeah. Spectrum News had a reporter based in Geneva. Yeah. That's a long, long time ago. Yeah. They don't anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, it, yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely a changing landscape. And it's just one more of those. We, we talked a lot over the last several months about these sort of overall philosophical questions of the future of America. And now what's happened is COVID and the sort of day-to-day rush of today's headline has pushed those all aside, we still have to have those conversations. Like you said, universal income and the safety net. What's education going to look like? What's health care going to look like? What's government going to look like? I mean, those, those questions are still out there, and we're still not really very well equipped to answer them. And one of the stories that I want to talk about next... Um, involves a piece of listener feedback that we got a few days ago, but it was repeated over and over again. We kept getting it. Um, And it had to do with a story that you guys have been covering pretty well and talking about pretty regularly. It's the public safety building in, or I should say, the new public safety building construction in the city of Auburn. Um, That question is why? And I think the context to that question is, Given everything that we're seeing right now in calls for police reform and accountability and shrinking of, of police services and, and pushing that money into other types of services, why make this investment now? Have you guys been able to get any sort of clarity on, or, or maybe even not so much clarity, but uh, an idea of why the city decided to continue to push forward at this point? Well, to be perfectly honest, I haven't been really carefully following the details of that story, but I think you just kind of touched on it. I think maybe part of it, at least, is a case of we better get it now before the climate gets worse. Because certainly, and then we just, we've had another shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, that set off a whole round of protests. It's, it's spilled over now in a big way into major professional sports. But so I, I think there's probably an idea that the climate for getting anything new for police departments might not be as good in a year or two as it is today. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, part of, part of that as well is in, in, you know, no matter what 
size or shape or appearance that uh, a law enforcement agency takes now moving forward if that's going to shift they still need a building that isn't falling apart and a building that fit, that works um, so of course that part of it makes sense that's you know that said I, I find it kind of it's it one of the things that I guess I haven't seen as much of and I was a little bit surprised by is there hasn't been a ton of coverage of the fact that it is a city and a city council controlled by Democrats and yet they are pushing for this large spend in public safety. And it seems that if you're sort of looking at things broadly, that is a rather unique situation. I mean, I'm not really sure how many cities in the United States right now are building new public safety buildings for police in general. Well, we also have in Auburn, too, There, it, 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 and I don't have the list right in my head, but it, as I recall, it seems like over the years... Uh, there's been a history of mayors coming from police and fire departments. I think uh, uh, Mayor Quill, is he the former fire chief, I believe? I believe so, yeah. And I think, if I remember, one of the previous mayors may have been the police chief at one time. So there's that may be a factor in it, is, is that some of the people holding the high positions in the city are coming out of that public safety background and would naturally be advocates for better facilities for them. Yeah. And of course, that's a story that we'll we'll keep talking about. And I'm sure we'll keep getting more and more attention as as construction starts to happen and people actually start to see it and not just, you know, a rendering on on one of our websites. Um, So over the summer, we uh, filed a FOIA request shortly before July 4th uh, for information related to an investigative series we were doing into nursing homes in Ontario County. Uh, basically here are the questions that we were trying to figure out. What did the county know about those facilities and coronavirus and reports of various uh, big issues and big systemic issues inside those places? And was any of that information knowingly being withheld? Uh, We requested a bunch of emails, that sort of thing. It's been over 40 days. And up until last week, we were told that it would take months for that request to be fulfilled. Months. Um, that is not a legal answer. That is not a correct answer to a FOIL request. Um, but we gave Ontario County the space and the weeks to do what they had to do. Then we, we filed the newsroom, followed up this past week and, and got what appeared to be a more definitive answer where we should see, we should see our FOIL request being fulfilled within the next few weeks. Again, a little ambiguous, but better than months and months. Um, Here's my take on this whole thing because I've I've kind of steered away from talking about this because I, I I've wanted to tread lightly while we're trying to do the investigative reporting on the ground. 2020 has been a really great year and a really great excuse for officials at pretty much every level of government to hide behind the decisions they're making on the day to day, whether it be about the pandemic or not about the pandemic. Meetings have been closed-door meetings for the most part. They've been streamed, but streaming a meeting is not the same as allowing the media and the public to come there, and especially when you're talking about the public coming to scrutinize decisions made by those elected officials. And if we continue to see this shielding happening over the next several months and into 2021, if the pandemic is going to require that kind of... uh, that kind of approach, even though most most meetings are switching to a public 
some form of public hybrid now, um, it will leave a gigantic hole in most local government. And it will create even more distrust between the people they represent and those elected officials. It will make it even harder for them to be able to do basic, just do basic things, pass a budget without being scrutinized into oblivion, be able to hire and fire and do all of those sort of day-to-day tasks that shouldn't be a big deal, but become a big deal when the public doesn't feel like they're getting answers they deserve. And in this case, you know, having to wait weeks and weeks or months for information that should be pretty easily attained and, frankly, is long overdue given what we now know happened inside those facilities from months March until, you know, June, basically. Um, it's, it's a shame, and my hope is that as boards come back online, and I know they are now, Seneca County is hosting normal meetings. I think Ontario County is getting ready to do the same thing. Wayne County is kind of getting in that space as well. I hope that they keep streaming them. I hope that they keep finding ways to get more people engaged and don't just draw it back, draw the line back now that they don't or at a point when they don't have to anymore. Because the best scenario is them streaming it for the folks who can't get to the meeting and then allowing those who want to come to the meeting, address the supervisors, uh, legislators, whatever the case may be, let them do it and give them the space to do it, as well as the media, what media is left around here. I know we just talked about how the media is shrinking into oblivion, but there are still reporters like me and others who like to show up to these meetings and and listen to what people say. Um, So, you know, it could be better, right? Like this could be an opportunity for local government to become so much better at being transparent and doing the things that it needs to do. But will we see that? My fear is that we're not going to because this year has given them a lot of a lot of cover, unfortunately. I think government generally has an attitude that it really doesn't want to be transparent. We've talked about that a lot of times. I think when you make a freedom of information request and it gets delayed, what's happening is behind the scenes, discussions are being held about what information do we really want to give this guy? How do we put the best face on it? And the third aspect is always if we stall him long enough the story won't be relevant anymore and it'll go away i just i think those things are baked into the system and it's unfortunate and it's also not going to get better when media gets cut back i mean the more people there are digging and asking tough questions uh the better off we are i mean we have uh, you know in geneva we have the geneva believer blog which which delves into some of the things behind the scenes and, and makes some people uncomfortable. And that's, uh, you know, what's the, the saying about afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted? I mean, that's what media needs to do, I think, more. And, and we all need to do that. We, the, the more we demand accountability, I think the more people say, yeah, you know, I really do want to know why they voted to do this and not this. And why are we spending money here and not here? But it's not going to be easy because uh, power does not give up its grip on power easily. It's getting tough. Uh, but what isn't getting tough is listening to you tomorrow morning, which is Friday and Monday through Friday. Where can folks do that? That's on Finger Lakes News Radio in Auburn. That's on 98.1 FM and 1590 AM, WAUB. In Geneva, it's 95.9 FM and 1240 
AM, WGVA, and uh, Josh joins me uh, every Friday morning at 6.50 for a sort of a truncated version of what we do here. And that is what we will be doing tomorrow morning, and we will be back next week for real. Ted's not going to go on vacation again. Don't worry, guys. Thanks for watching or listening. The show is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as well as YouTube. Visit www.fingerlakes1.com slash debrief to check out archived episodes or to leave us a message. For my guests in studio and the rest of the FO1 News team, have a great weekend, and we'll catch you next time.